Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. This is the reading of the Darley Routier Trial Testimony, Part 12. Now, as a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast and the trial coverage, make sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We are currently finishing up day five of the trial, which occurred on January 10th of 1997. Now on this day, there were eight witnesses in total. So quite a lot of testimony. Day five began, episode 60, actually began with the defense motion for mistrial. And we'll end up with today's episode where we'll hear from two additional paramedics that were on the scene, Brian Koshak and Larry Byford. In the last episode, we heard from Officer Steve Wade, who was manning the front door of the Routier home the night of the crime. We then heard from Officer Steve Ferry, who found the sock in the alley behind the home. And then finally, we heard from the first paramedic on the scene, Jack Colby, who tended to Damon. So first, let's quickly review some of the information we learned in that last episode. Officer Steve Wade, was the first one to testify, and he had been assigned to guard the front door of the Routier home on the early morning, in the early morning hours of June the 6th. He arrived at the house at approximately 3.15 a.m. He relieved Officer David Waddell, and Steve Wade, Officer Wade, remained there until 5.57 a.m. He recalled being instructed by Sergeant Walling to take up this position. And his primary duty was to ensure that no one entered the house during this time. And he adhered to this very strictly. He even denied entry to his chief of police, Chief Posey. Now, no other attempts had been made to enter the house, or at least none were noted. At 5.57 a.m., Officer Steve Ferry replaced him at the front door. Now, the officer's presence and duty at the front door were documented in State's Exhibit Number 34. There's a photo of Steve Ferry standing in front of the front door of the house and in his notes. And his notes were State's Exhibits, Exhibit, excuse me, Number 34-A from that day. He mentioned that he had met with prosecutors in Dallas and once in Kerrville, noting that during these meetings, many other officers were present. During cross-examination, he confirmed that all relevant officers were also present when the testimony involving the police officers were covered. Now, next we heard from Officer Steve Ferry. Now, Officer Ferry, he arrived at the Routier home around 4 o'clock in the morning and met with Sergeant Ward, his supervisor, and together... Steve Ferry and Sergeant Ward searched the alley behind Eagle Drive, behind the Routier home, where Sergeant Ward found a sock that was later retrieved for evidence by another officer, Officer Maine. Now, this was the only piece of evidence that they found during their 45-minute search. After the alley search, Officer Ferry then was assigned to guard the crime scene at the front door, and he relieved Officer Wade. His duties included preventing anyone from entering the residence, just like the previous officer, and also maintaining a log of individuals that were coming and going 
and these were documented in the crime log number 34-B, which started at 5.57 a.m. At 6.03 a.m., several individuals, including Sergeant Walling and Officer Main, entered the taped area. Not necessarily the house, but just the taped-off area around the house. Now, Karen Neal, it was also mentioned, who was a neighbor, did enter the house at 6.09 a.m., and she went in with others, but she only stayed for two minutes. The others that went in with her did a walkthrough of the house, and that was actually conducted by four individuals, including Walling and Maine. By 6.37 a.m., three of them had left, which left Maine inside by himself. Robin Price from the ME's office, the medical examiner's office, entered shortly after. Now, Officer Ferry was relieved from his door duty at 7.15 a.m. by Officer Ray Clark, and he was then posted in the alley. And he, there in the alley, and he interacted with a local by the name of Eileen Shermer, who, when he stopped her to see if, you know, they knew anything or they had heard anything overnight, she started to comment on the routier's financial situation, which I thought was really odd. But this was objected to in court, so we're likely not ever going to hear what she had to say. But it's interesting that a neighbor would know this, right? He also mentioned meeting with prosecutors twice, and he's talked about the importance of the consistency in their testimonies. He clarified that it was Officer Maine, not Beddingfield, who took custody of the sock. He also testified that he observed Sergeant Ward examining trash, but he didn't see him finding knives in the alley, which was noteworthy, as the only house with the, a wrought iron fence that was in the alley, which was the Gustavo Guzman's, where the knives were found in previous testimony. The officer, this one, Officer Ferry did not personally collect any evidence. And finally, we heard from the first paramedic on the scene, Jack Colby. And here's what we learned from him. A call came into the fire department for a possible stabbing at the Routier home. Jack Colby and his partner, Brian Koshak, arrived at the scene within five minutes after the call, so at around 2.30 in the morning. They were preceded, so another police car was already there, and another car drove behind them to the scene, and this one was driven by Officer Matt Walling, who ended up entering the house before the paramedics did so that he could clear the scene. Now, inside the house, once Jack Colby, the paramedic, got in there, he observed Officer Waddell and what he referred to as a distressed woman, who was Darley, standing at the far end of the bar on the living room side near the back wall. Now, Officer Waddell, when he looked at Jack Colby, just simply nodded his head in the direction of where Damon was lying on the floor. Jack also observed another man in the house, and this would have been Darren, who he happened to notice in the middle of the living room, but he never noticed another child. He did say that Darley was holding a towel to her neck. He then saw Damon face down on the floor in the family room. He was dressed in jeans and a black shirt. After examining Damon, who gasped for air, 
but then stopped breathing, CPR was administered. Amidst, you know, there was commotion and screaming from both Darren and Darley. The child was then moved to the ambulance for advanced life-saving techniques. But unfortunately, these efforts were unsuccessful. While Jack focused on Damon, his partner, Brian Koshak, attended to Darley's injuries. Now, Jack confirmed that there was no other female, uh, namely Karen Neal, the neighbor, who was present in the house. He also mentioned providing an affidavit and a drawing of the scene for the Rowlett Police Department and being questioned by Darley's original attorney, Douglas Parks. So that's kind of a really quick wrap-up of the last episode. Now, let's get on with the remainder of day five and hear from two more paramedics who were at the scene the night of the crime. We begin with the testimony of Brian Koshak, and the direct examination is being done by Prosecutor Greg Davis. Would you please tell us your full name? Brian Leland Koshak. All right, and Mr. Koshak, how are you employed? Rowlett Fire Department. All right, how long have you been with them? Six years. All right, and... Before joining the Rowlett Fire Department, had you worked in that capacity with some other agencies? Yes, sir. I was a paramedic with the Dallas Ambulance Service. All right. And for how long were you a paramedic with them? Three years. You've been with Rowlett for about six years. How long have you been a paramedic in all? Seven years. Now, is it true that you undergo additional training to become a paramedic? That's correct. Let me ask you, if back on June the 5th, 1996, were you working with a group there at the fire station, including Jack Colby? I was. And were you assigned to work in an ambulance with him? Yes, sir. Were you scheduled to work 7 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock in the morning on June the 6th? Yes, sir. I want to direct your attention to about 2.30 in the morning on June the 6th, 1996, and ask you whether or not a call came into the fire station. It did. And what was the nature of the call? Medical emergency, I believe. All right. Did you and Jack Colby then begin to respond to that call? We did. And did you begin to drive the ambulance over to the location? That's correct. And what location were you going to? I believe it was 5801 Eagle Drive. Were you driving or was paramedic Colby driving? Paramedic Colby was. All right. At any time before you got to the location there on Eagle, did you get any more information about what you were going to be facing when you got out there? Yes, sir. Additional information. It was a po possible stabbing. All right. Did you, in fact... Get to 5801 Eagle Drive? We did, sir. Could you tell who else was already at the location when you got there? There was one police car on the scene when we arrived and one right behind us. All right. And do you know the name of the officer that was driving the second police car? I believe it was Sergeant Walling. Okay. Did you and paramedic Colby immediately get out of the ambulance and go inside the house? Not immediately, no, sir. 
Did you wait for Sergeant Walling to clear the house for you? Yes, sir. Do you know about what, how much time it took for Sergeant Walling to clear the house before you and paramedic Colby would be allowed inside? One to two minutes. Did he, in fact, come out and tell you it was okay to go inside the house? He did. Did he give you any more information to work with? Yes, sir. He stated, we're going to need more help. All right. Did you do anything in response to him saying that to you? I did. What did you do? I radioed dispatch to send another, an additional engine, a fire truck, and ambulance. All right. While you were radioing for additional help, did paramedic Colby get out of the ambulance and start to go inside the house? He did. How far behind him were you when you got out of the ambulance and started to go inside? Footsteps right on his heels. All right. And did you go in through the front door? We did. When you got inside, did you go to any particular room inside the house? Directly through the foyer to, I call it the den. Okay. Down a hallway? Yes, sir. And into a room that you call a den. Is that right? That's correct. Let me just ask you briefly to look at States Exhibit Number 10. It's a floor plan of that residence out there. You just tell me, on this diagram, we have a room called the family room. Is that the room that you're referring to? Yes, sir, it is. Okay. When you got in there, was paramedic Colby already attending to a patient? Yes, sir. Okay. And where was his patient located? His patient was at the end of the foyer, right behind the couch as we walked into the family room. All right. So as you come into that room, would he have been straight ahead, on the left, the right? Where would he have been then? He would have been on my left. Could you see anyone else inside the room? Yes, sir. All right. Who could you see? Directly ahead of me was my partner, Jack Colby. And near the bar area in the family room was Officer Waddell and Mrs. Routier. All right. And they're standing there by the kitchen bar. Is that right? Yes, sir. That separates the family room from the kitchen? Yes, sir. All right. And about how far away from where paramedic Colby and his patient were the defendant and Officer Waddell? Could you rephrase the question? Yeah. How far away from paramedic Colby and the other child were Officer Waddell and the defendant? Five to six feet, I would guess. All right. And when we talk about the defendant, are we talking about the lady over here with the notepad and pen? Yes, sir. Over here in the green jacket, the green dress? Yes. Your Honor, may the record reflect, please reflect, that this witness has identified the defendant in open court. Yes, sir. All right. So we've got paramedic Colby. We've got his patient. We've got the defendant. We've got Officer Waddell. Was there anybody else inside that room? Yes, sir. There was two children. Okay. Was one of them paramedic Colby's patient? Yes, sir. All right. Another child in addition to that? That's correct. Okay. Any other adults? No, sir. Okay. Was there another male, the defendant's husband? Oh, yes, sir. Okay. 
Could you tell us where was the defendant's husband when you first saw him? Walking towards me and my partner from the child that was near the center of the room or thereabouts. Okay. The other child that's on the other side of the room? Yes, sir. And the defendant's husband is walking from the direction of that child over to where your partner is working on the other child. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, paramedic Colby had the one child he was working on. So what did you do? I proceeded around him. He, my passage was blocked and I continued around past Officer Waddell and Mrs. Routier to the second child. Okay. And again, just looking at States Exhibit number 10, let me just ask you, I'm pointing to an area that says second child. Does that look like an accurate representation of where this second child was right over here at this X? Yes, sir. And do I understand you to say that the defendant's husband was walking from that direction toward the direction where your partner was working on the other child? That's correct. Okay. And then did you take a direct route from where you were over to the second child or did you have to go around to avoid Mr. Routier? I had to go around to avoid Mr. Routier. Okay. And if you don't mind, if you can just step down and point for the members of the jury the route that you took to get over to that second child, please. Okay. At this point, the witness steps down and approaches the jury rail and the proceedings were resumed. And if you will, if you'll stand around to the side so that all of the members of the jury can see, just point out for them where you were. Okay, I came in this way. Okay, if you'll just stand back just a little more. Okay, thank you. Came around this way, around the couch, into here. All right, good enough, thank you. Whereupon the witness then went back onto the witness stand. And Mr. Greg Davis then continues his questioning. And when you got over to this second child, could you describe where he was? Was he laying down, sitting up? What was he doing? He was laying on his back. All right, so he's on his back. How was he clothed? His chest was bare. He did not. I didn't notice whether he had any bottoms on or not. All right, did you note injuries to him? Yes, sir, I did. Okay, what sort of injuries did you see? I noted a large laceration or puncture wound to the chest area. There were only a few other puncture wounds there and about the abdominal cavity. All right. Did you check him for vital signs? I did, sir. And did he have any pulse that you could detect? No, sir. He had no pulse, no respirations. Okay. No sign of life at that time. Is that right? No, sir. That's correct. Okay, did you notice, paramedic Koshak, while you were over there assessing him for vital signs, whether or not his eyes were still open? They were. What sort of expression did he have on his face? One of, I would have to say surprise, or kind of like, help me? Okay, was there anything that you could do for that child? No, sir. Did you stay over there with him, or did you go to someone else in that room? I went to Mrs. Routier after that. Okay. And was she still over near the kitchen bar with Officer Waddell? Yes, sir. If you would, 
When you got over to the defendant, can you please describe her appearance? She was covered in, I believe it was a large t-shirt with blood. The reason I had left the other child, I didn't, I mean, there was no vital signs and I had two patients. Therefore, I triaged the smaller child. I had a viable patient to work on. So I went to her injuries due to the blood. I had two patients and was by myself. So you took care of the, you assessed the child first and then went to Miss Routier, right? That's correct. And when you got over there, was she still standing up, sitting down? What is it she's doing? She's kneeling near Officer Waddell near the bar still. All right. Is she closer to the entry hallway or closer to the sliding glass door? Closer to the sliding glass door. Is there a lot of blood on the floor over in that area? I don't recall. Okay. And just how is she dressed? I believe all she had on was a large nightgown or a large t-shirt. All right. Did you note some injuries to her? Yes, sir. What sort of injuries did you note inside the house? I noted I removed the rag and noticed a large laceration to the neck area and also a laceration to the arm. So you've got a neck injury and then you've got a... Do you remember which arm you saw the laceration? If I had my report, I could tell you. I can't recall at this time. So one of the arms had an injury and the neck had an injury also, right? That's correct. Was she holding anything over either of the two wounds when you saw her? She was holding a rag to her neck. How about as far as her demeanor? What was she doing? What was she saying? How did she appear to be doing at that point? She was, she asked who could have done this to her babies. She wasn't, she was upset. She was upset. Okay, crying, screaming. No. Now, did you stay inside the residence with her or did you take her somewhere to treat her? I asked her to come with me to the front porch. I wanted to get out of the house and deemed it being necessary for both of us. Be a good thing to get out of the house. All right. And did she follow your instructions and did she go with you to the front porch? She did. All right. Did she seem to have any difficulties understanding what you wanted her to do at that point? No, sir. So you spent a short period of time inside and then you went out to the front porch and you began assessing her injuries again. Is that right? That's correct. Now, again, when you're trying to assess a patient for possible treatment, paramedic, what are you looking for? What types of things are you looking for? My initial assessment was that I was looking for excessive blood loss due to her appearance and shock due to the lacerations and the blood that she had on her chest area. I was looking for hypovolemic shock in this case. Okay, so you're looking, I guess you've looked at her injuries by this time, right? Yes, sir. And you're looking for excessive bleeding. Is that right? That's correct. And you're looking for shock. That's correct. Okay. Now, why is it important for you to make that assessment quickly on a patient? Because that's a life-threatening injury. Okay. And as a paramedic, had you received training in assessing individuals for shock? Yes, sir. All right. 
Let me just ask you, if you will, how many hours does it take to become a paramedic? You have to be an EMT first, which is about 200 hours. And then that's roughly 700 hours clinical and didactic training after that to be a paramedic. When you're talking about, what was that? Didactic? Didactic. And also your clinical rotation. What's the didactic part? Part. Actual classroom study. All right. What's the clinical part? You actually perform in emergency rooms, ICUs, surgery, and you ride along with other fire departments and other paramedics. All right. And the amount of training that you received to become a paramedic, what percentage of that training would you say is spent dealing directly with the issue of shock? About one third, which would mean about how many hours do you receive training to deal with shock and the assessment of shock? It covers cardiovascular and respiratory, roughly, I would say close to 300 hours, maybe more. And by this time, you've been a paramedic for how long? Seven years. Now, you have said that shock can be a life-threatening condition. Is that right? That's correct. And what can happen if an individual has gone into shock as far as threatening their life? Can they actually lose enough blood where they're going to die? Yes, sir. Well, when you got out there to the porch, did you in fact assess Mrs. Routier to determine whether or not she was suffering from shock? I did. Okay, and just describe for the members of the jury what you did out there that morning to determine whether or not she was suffering from shock or not. I noted her appearance, her color, being pale, which could be significant blood loss. She had a good skin color, good skin temperature. I touched her arm. I also performed a capillary regional check where you push down on the nail bed and it was a good blood return. That means she had an adequate blood pressure at that time. Decreasing blood pressure could be a sign or is a sign of shock. Okay. When you're assessing someone for shock, are you looking for their actions and their reactions to what's happening around them? I am. What types of things are you looking for? Is she alert and oriented to where she's at or what she's doing? Can she follow commands? Well, that sort of questioning. All right. Inside, you said that she followed your instruction to go out to the front porch. Is that correct? That's correct. Were you also talking to her outside on the porch also? Briefly. Yes, sir. All right. Did Mrs. Routier appear to be oriented as to the time, place, and person at that time. She did. Okay. Did she seem to understand what information that you were trying to give her? Yes, she was alert and oriented. Okay. You were talking about, I think at one time you talked about a shock by the name of hypovolemic shock. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's correct. Is that where you lose enough blood that you go into shock? That's correct. Are there other types of shock besides that? There are. Okay, let me just ask you. Have you ever heard of cardiogenic shock? Yes, sir. What kind of shock is that? It's a failure of the heart to pump adequate blood to the vital organs and to the body. All right, did it appear to you 
that Mrs. Routier was having any heart problems that would cause that type of shock. No, sir. Have you ever heard of neurogenic shock? Yes, sir. Okay, what type of shock is neurogenic shock? The central nervous system of the body is not performing correctly, therefore dilating blood vessels and arteries and inadequate blood perfusion to the brain and heart occurs. And what kind of symptoms will you see for that kind of shock? The same symptoms of almost all types of shock, with the exception of septic, are pale skin, color, disorientation, sometimes fainting, sometimes combative, decreasing blood pressure, falling, decreasing blood pressure, things of that nature. Were you seeing any of those items in Mrs. Routier while you were out on the porch with her? No, sir. Are you beginning to give her treatment for her injuries at that time? Yes, sir. Okay, what are you doing for her? Begin bandaging up her neck and her arm. All right, did anyone at any time come to the front porch to start helping you treat Mrs. Routier? Yes, sir. Who would that have been? Paramedic Larry Byford. Okay, Larry Byford? That's correct. All right, and did he assist you in actually putting bandages on the wounds that you noted to her? He did. Did you stay up there at the front porch with the defendant, or did you take her somewhere for additional treatment? I called for a stretcher. We placed her on the stretcher and took her to the ambulance. Okay, was the stretcher actually brought to the front porch? Yes, sir. Did you tell the defendant what you were about to do? Yes, sir. I asked her to please step over here and sit on the stretcher. Okay. Did she seem to have any problems understanding what you were asking her to do? No, sir. Did she go over to the stretcher and get on the stretcher for you? Yes, sir. Was she then taken to the ambulance on the stretcher? Yes, sir. And did you go out to the ambulance with her? I did. And once inside the ambulance, did you provide any additional care for Mrs. Routier? Yes, sir. I began to start an IV. Okay. Now, had you taken her to your ambulance or to another ambulance? I took her to the ambulance that I requested, the next in ambulance. Okay. Had paramedic Colby already taken his patient to y'all's ambulance? Yes, sir. So you're basically taking your patient to the backup ambulance. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. And who was working that ambulance? Who were the two people assigned to it, if you remember? Paramedic Eric Zimmerman and paramedic Larry Byford. Okay. And Larry Byford is the person who came up to the porch to help you, right? Yes, sir. Okay. When you got out there, what sort of treatment, what was done with Mrs. Miss Routier once she was in the ambulance? Larry began to disrobe her, and I started an IV of normal saline. EMT Higgins took her blood pressure at this time. Okay, you had noted, I think, when you went inside, I asked you about her clothing, and you noted that she either had some sort of nightshirt or something on. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, when you got, when she was taken to the ambulance, was she disrobed then? Yes, she was. For further treatment? Yes, sir. Besides this shirt or this nightgown, did she have any other clothing on? No, sir. No undergarments? No, sir. By this time, had her neck already been bandaged? Yes, sir. 
Okay. Byford and Zimmerman are out there. What again are you doing for her specifically? I started an IV of normal saline. Okay. And what's the purpose of that? It's a lifeline to induce fluids into the body if she has had significant blood loss. I was still under the assumption that she was either having tremendous amount of bleeding at the time or had lost some, a lot of blood. Okay. And what was that based on? Where? The way she looked? Just her outside appearance of her shirt. It was covered in blood. When you give an IV solution, is that medicine actually... Is it pain medication or anything like that, or is it just to replace fluid loss in the body? It's just a, a type of normal saline. It's just a type of salt water solution fluid replacement. Okay, are there times when you might give a higher rate of flow for the saline than in other cases? Yes, sir. Okay, in this case, what rate of flow of the IV, how strong an IV, did you give the defendant out there in the ambulance? Minimal drip rate. Minimal. That's correct. Minimal. Okay. And why did you choose to give her a minimal rate flow of IV out there in the ambulance? I just secured the IV in her arm and was getting ready to set the flow when EMT Higgins advised me of her blood pressure. It was 140 over 80. Okay. And 140 over 80, is that a good blood pressure? Yes, sir, it is. All right. And so from the fact that she had a good blood pressure out there, what did you determine about the blood loss and the need for an IV solution? She had not had significant blood loss to indicate a larger, a faster flow rate. All right. Besides giving her the minimum flow rate of the IV solution, did you render any additional treatment to Mrs. Routier out there in the ambulance? No, sir. Okay. Did you travel with Mrs. Routier to the hospital? No, sir. Okay. Would that have been the responsibility of Eric Zimmerman and Larry Byford? That's correct. It was their ambulance. Okay. Did you immediately leave 5801 Eagle or did you remain there for some period of time? I remained on the scene. Okay. What did you do? What's the next thing that you do after you finished treating Mrs. Routier there in the ambulance, what do you do then? Reported to my captain, ready for assignment. Okay. Was that Dennis Vrana? Yes, sir, it was. Okay. Did you get another assignment? I did. What was your assignment? To, I received two assignments. I'm not sure of the order in which I performed them. That was to check on the youngest child that was the infant that was found upstairs who was at a neighbor's house and ascertain if he had any injuries. Okay, so this was an infant that had been found upstairs in the house? That's correct. All right, did you go over and check the infant then? I did. Did you find him to be in good condition? Yes, sir. Asleep. No injuries on him, right? That's correct. When you finished with the infant, then what's the next thing that you were instructed to do? He asked me to go in back into the residence to ascertain my patient, my first patient, if there was anything further I could do. Okay. And we're talking about the other child that's still in the family room. Is that right? That's correct. 
If we look at States Exhibit 9-B of Devin Routier, does this appear to be a photograph of the child that you were attempting to help in the family room? Yes, sir, it was. Was he still in the same position as he had been? Yes, sir. Okay, and what, if anything, did you do for Devin Routier the second time that you went in there? Anything that you could do? No, sir. His condition was unchanged, right? That's correct. Okay. All right. You finished the first assignment with the infant. You've now assessed Devin's condition and you find it to be unchanged. What else did you do out there? I reported back to the captain. He advised me to get on the cellular phone and get Assistant Chief Cunningham en route and also get the pastor en route, our chaplain, our fire department chaplain. Okay. And what was the purpose of having the chaplain to come out? to counsel any members of the scene, the rescue fire department and police officers. Okay, yourself included? That's correct. Okay. Had you ever been out to a call quite like this, paramedic Koshak? No, not of this nature, no. Okay. Were you having a hard time dealing with it out there yourself? Yes, sir. Okay. After you made this call, did you stay in the house or to make the call or did you leave out of the house or what did you do? Could you rephrase the question? Yeah. After you made this call, did you remain inside the house or did you go ahead and exit the house? I exited the house. How long did it take you to go back inside the house and assess Devin, Devin's condition, as the captain had instructed you? How long had it been? No, sir. How long did it take you, once you went back in there after attending to the infant, how long did it take you to go back in there to assess Devin? Seconds. Okay. And once you finished up that assessment, did you stay inside the house or did you leave the house? I left the house. Okay. When you left the house, after that second assessment of Devin, do you remember who was still left inside the house when you left? I don't believe there was anybody in the house. It would be your recollection that you were the last person out then. That's correct. Do you remember whether or not you saw anyone on the front door when you left the house? I bumped into someone standing there with a monitor. I believe somebody had been posted there. Okay. Not sure who it was though? No, sir. I was wanting out of the house. All right. You just wanted out of the house. Yes, sir. Okay. Why? I just wanted out of the house. Okay. Let me ask you, when you first saw, when you first saw the defendant over there by that kitchen bar, did you see any vacuum cleaner in the vicinity of where she was? No, sir. While you were inside the family room itself, did you ever see a vacuum cleaner inside the family room? Not that I can recall. No, sir. What rooms exactly did you, yourself, go into at 5801. You told us that you went into the hallway and you went into the family room. What other rooms besides the hallway and the family room did you go into? That's all. Both times that you went in. Yes, sir. Did you ever move a vacuum cleaner inside the residence? No, sir. Ever touch a vacuum cleaner inside the residence? No, sir. Okay. When you went in there, were you the only paramedic that treated Mrs. Routier inside the house? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Larry Byford assisted you on the front porch. Is that right? That's correct. So he's helping with Mrs. Routier. Is that right? Yes, sir. Did Larry Byford ever go inside the house? Not to my knowledge. I really don't know. Okay, well, did he come to the front porch with you? Yes, sir. Did he go to the ambulance with you? Yes, sir. Okay. Did he leave in the ambulance with the defendant? He did. Okay. To your knowledge, did any other paramedics actually treat Mrs. Routier? No, sir. Let me ask you, do you have an estimate, Paramedic Koshak, of the amount of time that you were actually with the defendant out there at the scene, and I'm including here the time that you spent with her inside the house, the time that you spent with her on the front porch, the time that you spent with her transporting her to the ambulance, and I'm including here the time that you spent with her in the ambulance itself? Seven to eight minutes. Okay. And during that period of time, did you ever, first of all, did you ever hear the defendant in your presence ever mention the baby or the infant that was found upstairs in the house? No, sir. During these seven or eight minutes that you were with the defendant, did you ever hear her ask about the condition of her two sons, the two children that you and paramedic Colby were attempting to treat there in the family room? No, sir. Did you ever hear her make any comment about the children other than the one of why would someone to do this to my babies? That's correct. That's the only one. That's the only one? Yes, sir. Okay. Let me take you back to the ambulance for just a moment. The defendant is in the ambulance. How would you describe her demeanor or her behavior out there in the ambulance? Is she screaming? Is she loud? What's she acting like in the ambulance? She's quiet. She didn't say another word in the ambulance. Okay. Not while I was in there. Okay. One other question about what you did inside. While you were inside the house, did you ever see a female civilian come into that room? And I'm not talking about the defendant, but any other female come into that family room? No. Ever see anyone come into the home identified as Karen Neal? No, sir. Okay. And I'm including both the first time that you're inside the house and the second time. Either time, did you ever see a person, Karen Neal, or just an unidentified civilian female come inside that family room? No, sir. Finally, is this the first time that you've testified in front of a jury? Yes. You've been down here in Kerrville since what, Monday night? Yes, sir. Before we came down here to Kerrville, did I have an opportunity to talk with you about your testimony about what you did out there that morning? Yes, sir. As far as the first time we met, did we meet out at the Rowlett Police Department? Yes, sir. Did you have an occasion to come to Dallas County Courthouse and speak with me also? Yes, sir. At one point, did we go down to a courtroom where other police officers and paramedics were there to discuss what they knew about the case too? Yes, sir. Did you inform me at some point you had never testified before? I did. Did I ask you at some point to get on the witness stand and basically tell me what you did, just like you've told this jury over here? I did. And since you've been in Kerrville, how many times have you and I met to discuss your testimony or what you're going to be doing here in this courtroom today? Once. Okay. Paramedic Koshak, 
Let me ask you if you prepared a couple of reports concerning this incident out there that morning. Let me just ask you to look at States Exhibit 20-E and 20-F and tell me whether or not those are the reports that you prepared in this case. Yes, sir, they are. Okay, one of them dealing with an unknown patient and the other one dealing with Darren Routier. That's correct. Okay, you didn't find any injuries on Darren Routier, did you? No, sir. In addition to States Exhibit 20-E and 20-F, let me just ask you whether or not you wrote some notes about what you did out there that morning. Yes, sir. Okay. And I'm showing you the last three pages here of this group. Are those the notes that you made? Those are my notes. Okay. If you would, again, just speak up so the court reporter can hear you. Yes, those are my notes. Okay. Thank you, sir. Did someone ask you to make those notes? Yes, sir. The police department. Okay. In addition to that, did you also give the police department an affidavit concerning what you had done out there and what you saw that morning? I did. Let me ask you also, sir, if back when we were in Dallas, did you come to the courthouse one day so that an attorney representing Mrs. Routier could question you about this case? I did. And was that testimony given under oath? Yes, it was. Did he have an opportunity to cross-examine you that day? He did. All right. Let me ask you, do you recognize the attorney over here, Mr. Hagler, as being the person who questioned you that day? No, sir. Okay. How about Mr. Mosty? Next to him. No, sir. Mr. Mulder? No, sir. How about Mr. Glover? Back here. No, sir. In the kind of greenish or tan suit? No, sir. How about Preston Gut Douglas here in the dark suit? No, sir, I don't recognize any of them. Okay, so it's none of the five attorneys here. No, sir. Do you recognize the name Douglas Parks? Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, sir. Okay, so he's actually the person that questioned you that day. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay, Your Honor, at this time we'll tender to counsel states exhibits 20-E and 20-F, which are the reports, and states exhibit 20-H, which is the affidavit and notes prepared by this witness. Pass the witness for cross-examination. Mr. Douglas Mulder of the defense team then says, Judge, if I could have just a minute. The court says, you may. All right. Uh, Mr. Mulder then says, Judge, we have got a number of pages here. Do you want to take a recess? And at this point, they take like a 10-minute recess so that they can go over the information that they have just received. Once everyone is back in the courtroom, Mr. Douglas Mulder then begins his cross-examination. And he begins with, uh, Mr. Koshak, just a thing or two, and I'll be reasonably brief. I notice in your notes, you have a diagram. Is that right? Yes, sir. Let me hand you a portion of what has been marked for identification record purposes as 20-E. And I'll ask you, if that is the diagram that you have authored. Yes, sir, it is. Okay, that's not an accurate diagram, is it? Well, it's definitely not to scale. Well, and I'm not faulting you for it, but the furniture is out of place, isn't it? Yeah. Huh? Yes, sir. Okay. And so, needless to say, you did that, I assume, after the fact. Yes, sir. You didn't do it while you were in there, did you? No, sir. Okay, and 
memory on what was going on in there, there was a lot going on, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Okay, and both the male and female were both screaming and excited and distraught. I believe you described her as distraught. Did you not? It was extremely loud. Chaotic? Yes, sir. Okay. You moved her to the... After you had attempted to give aid to the child and were unsuccessful, unsuccessful in doing anything with him, it was apparent he was dead, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Okay. And that would have been apparent to a layman, would it not? I don't know. But it was apparent to you, wasn't it? Yes, sir. I mean, you could tell by looking that there was nothing you could do. That's correct. Okay. And could you tell whether or not someone had attempted some sort of emergency procedure on him? No, sir. You couldn't tell one way or the other, or you could tell? I couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell whether whether there had been efforts to resuscitate him? I wasn't looking. You then said that Mrs. Routier was crouched or kneeling over in the corner. Is that right? Yes, sir. And you took her out of there and took her to the front porch. Yes, sir. All right. And it was there that you examined this, I believe you said a large gash to her neck. Laceration. Yes, sir. Laceration. About how long was the laceration? Three to four inches. Okay. You describe it in your report as four to five inches? It could have been. I don't recall. I mean, I'll be happy to show it to you. That's fine. Okay. You take my word that you say four to five inches in your report. It was around four inches. Yes, sir. It was a substantial laceration. Was it not? In length, yes, sir. Okay. And don't you say that it was right over the jugular vein? In that area, yes, sir. Okay. Now you bandaged her neck. Is that correct? That's correct. And you did that there in the, on the porch? That's correct. Was she seated there? I believe she was crouched. Okay. And do you recall whether or not a nurse who lived nearby came up at that time? No, sir. You don't remember. No, sir. No one came up to me at that time. Okay. Was there, when you walked out, I take it you led her out of the house? I did. And the only other police officer in there at that time was Waddell. I don't recall. You don't know whether he left or not? I don't believe there was anybody behind me. Okay, just you and Mrs. Routier left? That's correct. Her husband had already gone? Yes, sir. Okay, you examined him later, didn't you? I did. And he had blood on his hands, didn't he? I don't recall. It was... I don't recall. It was very brief. He didn't want my services, so... Let me hand you what's been marked for identification record purposes as States Exhibit 20-E. Yes, sir. Did he, as you recall now, did he have blood on his hands and on his arms? If I wrote it there, yes, sir. You just read it? Yes, sir. So he did? Yes, sir. Okay. At any rate, you led her from the house to the front porch. Is that right? I led her. Yes, sir. Okay. And she crouched there while you tended to her neck? That's correct. Okay. 
You say in your report that she had a two-inch laceration on her right arm. Do you remember that? Yes, sir. I remember the laceration. Okay. And did you bandage that at that time, too? I can't recall if either I did or Larry Byford did. I believe we were both working on her. All right. Was there anyone else around you at that time? No, sir. Not that I recall. Okay. No nurse from across the street? No, sir. Okay. And no one had come up behind you when you and Miss Routier exited the residence through the front door? No, sir. So it was just you and Mrs. Routier and officer or paramedic Byford? That's correct. Okay. And once you had bandaged her, her neck, and either you or paramedic Byford had bandaged her arm, do you also recall one-inch stab wound to her chest? Yes, later. All right. And I take it that y'all attended to that as well. We did. All right. Was she then moved by you and paramedic Byford to the ambulance? Yes, sir. Okay. Just the two of you moved her. No, I believe it was... Well, there was three of us. Who else? The man who brought the stretcher. Who was that? That was EMT Higgins. Okay. And the three of you then moved her to the ambulance. Yes, sir. No one else around you at that time? No, sir. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Okay. And she was placed in the ambulance. Is that right? Yes, sir. And subsequently taken to Baylor Hospital. She left the area? Yes, sir. You know that? Yes, sir. And I take it you were there when she left? I was. Okay. I mean, just kind of putting it together in my mind. I see y'all taking her out to the stretcher, putting her in the ambulance, and you hook up the IV and away they go. Yes, sir. Is that right? That's correct. All right. You said the paramedic Byford was disrobing her. That's correct. And how did he do that? Do you know? Taking a pair of trauma shears and cutting her t-shirt. Okay. Can you tell the jury? Were you there and did you see how he cut it? Yes, sir. Okay. Can you tell them how he cut the t-shirt? Just by taking a pair of trauma shears. We call them trauma shears. They are meant to cut seatbelts in car accidents, things of that nature, and clothing articles so we can find any additional injuries to the body, expose and examine. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, expose and examine is what we call it. Let me stand over here. At any rate, how was the t-shirt cut? I mean, did you cut it right up the middle? Did you cut it on the sides? Did you cut the arms? He was doing it right in front of me, but I was starting the IV, so my attention was not fully focused on it. I was aware that he was cutting it off, but I couldn't tell you which direction he was cutting it. Do you know what was done with it once it was cut off? No, sir, I do not. She would have been, as I take it, lying on a gurney or a stretcher or something of that nature. Stretcher. Okay, so she would still be on the back and I guess you would take the front off. Well, I don't know how he did it. Okay, do you remember if the TV set was on or not? I don't recall. Do you remember if there was a TV set in the family room? And no, sir, I was too busy to notice. Okay. When you assisted Mrs. Routier on the front porch, was the towel still on her neck? 
Yes, sir. You are sure about that? Yes, sir. I removed it on the front porch. What did you do with it? I believe I laid it on the front porch. Just left it there on the front porch? Yes, sir. You would not have tossed it back into the residence, would you? No, sir. And you wouldn't have sent it with her? No, sir. Okay, so your best recollection, the towel that she had on her neck was left there on the front porch. Yes, sir. What does triage black mean? Triage black. Triage black. It's a triage is, is that a procedure that you go through? Yes, sir. To determine whether or not someone has life signs? It means to sort. Okay. And that's what it's used for, is a procedure to determine whether or not someone is, in fact, alive. No, sir. What's it used for? To sort patients. Decide who is going to take which patient? No, sir. At the time, I was the only paramedic. My partner had already left the house. I had two patients. I triaged the child black, meaning non-salvageable. Okay. At that time. This cloth or towel that was around her neck, can you describe that for us? I don't recall. Okay. I know it was a rag of some sort. I really don't recall. Do you have any idea what color it was? No, sir. I take it it was bloody. I would assume I don't recall. You don't remember whether it was white or whether it was a color? No. Nothing at all? No. Like you said, it was chaotic, wasn't it? Yes, sir. And the purpose in moving Mrs. Ruchier outside was an attempt to calm her down, was it not? Her and myself, okay. I wanted a place where I could work undisturbed. Okay, and let me hand you again what's been marked for identification record purposes as States Exhibit Number 20. That is your handwriting, isn't it? Yes, sir. You see the part that's highlighted by your right thumb? Yes, sir. And that's correct. Is it fair to say that you moved her outside in an effort to calm her down? Yes, sir. Mr. Koshak, did you see a necklace around her neck? I did not. Do you remember whether or not I don't recall seeing one? No, sir. Okay, I believe that's all. Thank you. Mr. Greg Davis says, mark this exhibit, please. And then Mr. Davis begins his redirect examination. Mr. Koshak, let me ask you to look at Stace Exhibit number 24, a photograph, and tell me whether or not that photograph truly and accurately depicts the front porch of 5801 Eagle Drive as it appeared on June 6th, 1996. It does. Okay. Okay, Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer State's Exhibit Number 24. Mr. Mulder says we have no objection. The court says State's Exhibit Number 24 is admitted. And then Mr. Davis continues with his questioning. And again, as we're looking at this photograph, sir, do we see certain items on the front porch? Yes, sir. Okay, is there a square piece of material of some sort? Yes, sir. A 4 by 4 package? Yes, sir. Okay. Is that one of the gauze bandages that you would have been using? That's correct. I'm holding my finger on it at this time. Is that right? Yes, sir. Would this have been in the area where you're treating Mrs. Routier? That's correct. 
Do we see another item out here on the front porch, Mr. Koshak? Yes, sir. A white object? Yes, sir. Covered in blood? Yes, sir. Is that something that you were using to treat her with? Yes, sir. That was around her neck. That's what I removed. Okay, that's the towel or the rag that you have been testifying about. Yes, sir. Okay. I am now holding my finger on that one, correct? Yes. Again, is that an area where you were treating Mrs. Routier? It was. Okay, and again, as you indicated to Mr. Mulder, you simply left those items out on the front porch. Is that right? I did. Okay. One other question, sir. Let me ask you whether or not as you came into the room for the first time, your partner is already there, you're coming into the room. Would you tell us whether or not you remember the defendant making any statements at that time, sir? Yes, she said who could have done this to my babies. And somebody had asked her a question and she was replying about the description of who she thought did it, I believe. Okay, let me just show you a portion of State's Exhibit 20-H, your report, and ask you just to look at the last paragraph again. This is a report or affidavit that you prepared on what date? It was the 6th, June 6th? Yes, sir, that's correct. If you would, just read that. Yes, sir. Okay. He broke. Does that refresh your memory? Yes, sir, it does. Okay. Let me just ask you again whether you recall her making a statement and what statement that was. Who could have done this? And he, something about broke out a window with a baseball bat or had a black baseball cap on. All right. It reads, quote, he broke out a window and had a baseball cap on. Yes, sir. Broke out a window and had a baseball cap. That's correct. Who did this? Yes, sir. And she's saying this as you're coming into the room. As I'm coming into the room, she's standing over there with Officer Waddell. That's correct. All right. I'll pass the witness. At this point, the recross by Mr. Mulder begins. You say now, well, Officer Koshak, that you've been through this four times with the prosecutor, haven't you? Correct. And if I can count, this is the third time you've been on the witness stand and the second time under oath. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. So you guys have talked about this. You talked about it in Dallas. You talked about it down here. It's not real complicated, is it? It was the talking to before was more trying to get me used to the courtroom experience. Oh, you're just bashful? No, sir. Right? No. But now you're telling us that as you, now you recall that as you walked in, she said, quote, he broke out a window with a baseball bat. I have it on my report there. I can't recall it exactly from memory. What she said, it's on my report. And you don't remember whether the TV set was on. No, sir. You don't remember whether there were towels or washcloths around. No, sir. Okay. You're not, you told us that there wasn't a washcloth on the youngster that you attended to. Is that right? I didn't say one way or the other. You didn't say one way or the other? No, sir. And you're still not saying one way or the other. No, sir, I don't believe that there was anything on there. I don't recall that. Do you recall if there was one to the side on either side of him? I don't recall. 
So you're not saying there wasn't, and you're not saying that somebody didn't make an effort to resuscitate that child, are you? I didn't say that. I couldn't tell that. I believe that is all. Thank you. Mr. Greg Davis says no further questions, and the court then says you may step down, sir. Next up to the stand, we have the testimony of Larry Byford. And again, we begin with the direct examination by the prosecutor, Mr. Greg Davis. Sir, would you please tell us your full name? Larry Wayne Byford. Are you employed by the Rowlett Fire Department? The court then interrupts and said, just for the record, can we spell that last name every time they get up here to make sure Miss Halsey has it? And the witness then says, B-Y-F-O-R-D. And then the court says, all right. Mr. Craig Davis then continues. And are you employed by the Rowlett Fire Department? Yes. Are you a firefighter? Yes, sir. Are you a, also a paramedic? Yes. How long have you been a firefighter with Rowlett? Since May of 89. May of 89? Yes. How long have you been a paramedic? Since 1990. Okay. Back on June the 5th, 1996, were you on duty that day? Yes. What were your hours at work? 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. the next morning. All right. So you were scheduled to work until 7 a.m. on June 6th, right? That's correct. All right. Were you at the same fire station as Brian Koshak and Jack Colby? No. Okay. Where was your fire station located? 4418 Main Street. All right. Is that going to be west of where Delrock and 66 intersect? Yes. All right. So in relationship to 5801 Eagle, you're west of that location, right? That's correct. Sometime after 2.30 in the morning, did you receive a call at your fire station to go to 5801 Eagle? Yes. And were you assigned to an ambulance that evening? Yes. Okay. Who was your partner on that ambulance? Eric Zimmerman. And did you and Eric Zimmerman then go in an ambulance to 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes. Can you tell us whether or not Brian Koshak and Jack Colby were already at that location when you arrived? Yes, they were there. When you first got there, what's the first thing that you did then, paramedic? Proceeded to the front of the house, there, the front door of the house. Was anybody up there? Yes. All right. Who was at the front door or on the front porch? Brian Koshak was triaging Mrs. Routier. Is that the lady over here in the green dress who's reading? Yes. Your Honor, may the record please reflect that this witness is identifying the defendant in open court. Yes. Okay. So the defendant was up there. And was Brian Koshak also up there? Yes. Remember anybody else being out there at that time? I remember someone, an officer, possibly standing to the left of the door. A police officer? Yes. Okay. And what was Brian Koshak doing with the defendant? Assisting her with or rendering care. Okay. And did you start to assist him in helping her? She was being cared for by Brian, 
So I stepped just inside the house to see if there was anyone else. All right, how far into the house did you go? I went far enough into the foyer there, in the hallway there, where I could see the living room floor, and I could see part of a service area, I suppose, the kitchen. Okay, did you actually go into the family room or the room that you're talking about? No, that's as far as I remember going into the house itself there, was just that area right there in the... Okay, did you ever go into the kitchen? No. How long did you stay in the house then before you left? It was a matter of seconds, less than a minute. Okay, did you leave the same way as you would come in? Yes, all right. When you came back out, was the defendant and Brian Koshak still out there on the porch or had they left? No, they were still on the front porch. Did you start to do anything at that time then? Yes, I assisted Brian with care. Was it apparent that the defendant had some injuries to her? Yes. Okay. Did she have any injuries to her neck area? Yes. And what, if anything, did you start to do with regard to the neck injury? I believe we first bandaged the arm. All right. The right arm here. And then she had a rag. Either she was holding a rag or he was holding a rag. It looked like a, a cup towel comes to mind. And I opened up some sterile 4x4s and I got those ready and put them in place. And then we taped them. Taped the 4x4s in place. Okay. So you actually then took a 4 inch by 4 inch sterile gauze pad. Is that right? That's correct. Put it over the wound on the neck? Yes. Was that to stop the bleeding? Yes, it was to cover the wound. I'm sorry. Did you also then put some sort of gauze pad over the injury on the right arm? Yes. Okay, during that period of time, and Brian Koshak is still with you, right? That's correct. At some point, did you transport the defendant out to an ambulance? Yes. Would that have been the ambulance that you drove to the scene? That's correct. That night, were you the driver or were you going to be the other individual in the van? I was the driver. Okay. How did you transport the defendant out to the ambulance? We had a cot brought up to the front porch there and we escorted her to the cot and set her on that and then took her to the ambulance on the cot. Okay. When you got out to the ambulance then, was she placed into it? Yes. And what was done at that point then, Mr. Byford? Todd Higgins was the EMT off of the first engine there. He was attaining a blood pressure. Brian was looking for an IV site and I was charting. I was sitting at the head of the cot and I was charting. What do you mean you were charting? I was writing down, writing on my report there, of what her medications she was taking, if she was allergic to any medications, any medical history that she may have, her name, age, things of that nature. Okay, I'll just ask you, was she able to give you her name? Yes. How about date of birth? Was she able to give you her date of birth? I believe so, but I couldn't answer positive without reviewing my run report there. Okay. Mr. Byford, let me show you what's been marked for identification for record purposes only as States Exhibit 20-L. 
And if you would, just take a moment to look at that. Yes, sir. Is that, in fact, the report that you prepared? Yes, that's correct. This is the report that you're talking about? Yes. Okay. Let me ask you again. You had indicated that you had asked for her name and she was able to give you a name, right? Yes. Darley Routier? Yes. You asked her for her date of birth next. Is that right? That's correct. Was she able to give you a date of birth? Yes. You asked about patient medication. Is that right? Yes. Why is that important to know? It tells us in a lot of cases, if a patient has a medical history, if she has been taking Lasix, we might suspect that she was in need of a diuretic. She retains too much water. And that's, you know, that would give us a hint there. So if she's taking a certain medication, it might react badly to some other medication that you need to give her. And that's correct. When you ask for past patient medication, did she seem to understand what you were make asking for? Yes. Was she, in fact, able to give you a medication that she was taking? Yes. For weight loss? Yes. Did you ask her about allergies? Yes. Again, are you asking if she's allergic to certain medications? Any medication that she knows of that she's allergic to. And that would be important to know, right? That's correct. Did she seem to understand what you were asking when you asked for that? Yes. And did she give you an answer that she had no known drug allergies? That's correct. Okay. So as I understand then, Brian Koshak has begun the IV, correct? Yes. Todd Higgins has taken her blood pressure, right? Yes. You've now charted, correct? Yes, sir. How long did it take you to chart this information on the report here on States Exhibit 20-L? The initial assessment here with the information about the medication, less than a minute, two minutes. Okay. During that time then, this time then, you've had a chance to chart some other things that have been done. What's the next thing that is done with the defendant in the ambulance? Once we got her into the ambulance, I disrobed her and checked for further injuries. We initiated the IV, oxygen, and put her on a heart monitor. All right, let me back you up and ask you, what kind of clothing was the defendant wearing that morning? A gown. Okay, anything else besides the gown? No. Okay, was this a light-colored sort of t-shirt sort of gown? Yes, it was a t-shirt type material. You said that you disrobed her. Can you describe for us the method that you used to remove this t-shirt or this nightgown from the defendant? I used shears. We call them trauma shears. And I cut down the middle of the gown, down the front here. And then I cut from the neck down the sleeves, each side like that. And it just falls away. Okay. Okay. So... You first, first you cut down the middle of the gown. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. From the opening here at the neck, down to the bottom, to the hem. And then around the neck area, and you take it down one sleeve? Yes, from the neck opening to the sleeve opening, both sides. Do both sides, right? Yes. Okay. And is that what you did that morning? Yes. And when you did that, then, 
this gown fell open so that you could examine the defendant to determine if there were any other injuries that you might have missed, right? That's correct. Okay. And now, by this time, you do you still have the gauze pad over her neck? Yes. Okay. And when you start to examine the defendant, did you notice whether or not she was wearing any jewelry around her neck? After we got into the ambulance and I had the had cut the shirt off, I realized that there was that I had taped a necklace under the bandage. I had put the bandage on on the porch there, not knowing or I couldn't see that there was a necklace there. All right. And did you remove the necklace while you were in the ambulance with the defendant? No, I tried to move it just a little bit, but it irritated her. And so I left it alone. What do you mean it irritated her? She grimaced. Okay. So as the necklace went over her neck, it caused some pain. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. As a matter of fact, did you leave that necklace underneath that dressing until you got her to Baylor Hospital? That's correct. If we may, let's go back to the scene again. You're in the ambulance with the defendant. What's her demeanor? How is she acting out there at the time that you're with her, still there at the scene? Is she saying things? Is she screaming? Is she loud? I mean, what is she doing? Anxious would be my best description. Okay, could you tell what she was anxious about? I would suppose the scene there. All right, did she ever make any comments to you that led you to believe that she was anxious? On the scene, no. In route, she acted anxious. And some of the things, or what she was asking me and the tone of her voice... It was, you know, how much further to the hospital? Are we there yet? Things of that nature. Okay, so she's asking, how much longer until you get me to the hospital, right? That's correct. Okay, and from that comment, you thought that she was anxious on the way to the hospital, right? Yes, sir. Okay, how long did you remain there at the scene with the defendant in the ambulance? I'm not quite sure of the exact length of time. Short period of time? Long? A short period of time, I would say. If I were to guess, it would be less than 10 minutes. Okay. And once you left the scene, did you go to Baylor Hospital in Dallas? Yes, sir. Just an approximation. How long did it take you to get the defendant from scene to Baylor Hospital downtown? It would have been, it would be approximately 20 to 30 minute drive from Rowlett. Okay. What kind of care are you rendering to the defendant on the way to the hospital? Oxygen, IV therapy, or we have IV access that is for fluid replacement if we need it, a heart monitor. On the way from the scene to the hospital, did you administer any sort of pain medication to the defendant? No. How about tranquilizers or any other medication to her? No. So the only thing she had was the IV that Brian Koshak had started, correct? That's correct. You've told us about the defendant's comments about when are we going to get to the hospital? Do you recall her making any other statements or was she relatively quiet on the way down there? She had remarked once about doing CPR on one of the boys. All right. Did she describe how she did that? No. Okay. Any other comments that you can recall? No, sir. Any other comments about the condition of the children? Did she ever make any inquiry 
about either of the two boys who had been patients there at the scene? No. Any comment in particular about the child that was being transported to Baylor Hospital where she was headed? No. Now, as you are going down to the hospital, did you see any change in the defendant's condition? No. You're monitoring her blood pressure. Is that right? Yeah, we have her on a heart monitor. Okay. So did you see anything, any irregularities, any drop in blood pressure, anything that would indicate that you would need to give her some sort of treatment? No. Now, as part of being a paramedic, have you received training in assessing people for signs of shock? Yes. And just, if you will, briefly, describe the kind of training that you received in order to make that kind of assessment. Our training includes, for just a paramedic certification, is 680 hours, classroom, clinicals, rotations, through the Dallas Fire Department. This is with the Medical Center of Dallas. They are one of the trauma hospitals. Okay. At that time, you had been a paramedic for what, about six years? You started in 90? Yes. Let me just ask you, paramedic Byford, during the entire period that you were with a defendant on the porch, transporting her to the ambulance while you're in the ambulance at the scene and while you're transporting her to the hospital, did you ever believe the defendant to be in shock? No. Was she ever exhibiting any signs of shock that you thought needed any sort of treatment whatsoever? No. Okay. And were you looking for signs of shock? Yes. Okay. Is that important for you to do? Yes, in a trauma situation, it is. What kinds of things were you looking for? Blood pressure, rate, rhythm, the patient's level of consciousness, okay, and skin color. All of those were good? Yes, a paramedic Byford. Let me ask you, before we came to Kerrville, did you and I have a chance to meet? Yes, sir. Do you recall how many times we have met and discussed your testimony and what you did out there that morning? two or three. Did we meet at the Rowlett Police Department one time? Yes. And did we meet down at the courthouse? Yes. Did we meet in a courtroom down there? Yes. All right. And did I ask you to get on the witness stand and tell me what you've told this jury this afternoon? Yes. Besides those meetings, did we also, let's see, I believe sometime in November, did you come by 5801 Eagle Drive to meet with me briefly? Yes. Since we've been here in Kerrville, did you get on on Monday? Yes, Monday night. How many times have we met to discuss your testimony and what you did? Briefly. Okay. Once briefly. Was that today? That was today. Okay. Let me ask you if on June the 12th of 1996, if the Rowlett Police Department asked you to give an affidavit concerning what you remembered out there that day. Do you recall that? No, I don't recall that. Okay. Let me just show you what appears to be an affidavit. In fact, this is State's Exhibit 20-J for record purposes. It's one page of handwritten material with a diagram. Yes. All right. And it's dated June 12th, right? Yes. Okay, is this the affidavit and the diagram that you did for the police on June 12th? That's correct. That's my signature. Okay. And also, let me ask you, prior to coming to Kerrville, do you recall having your deposition taken? 
Yes. All right. And was that deposition taken by an attorney representing Mrs. Brutier in Dallas? Yes. And did he have an opportunity to ask you questions about what happened out there? Yes. And what you did? Yes. And a record was made of that deposition, correct? Yes. Okay. Your Honor, at this time, we'll tender States Exhibits 20-J and 20-L to counsel and pass the witness for cross-examination. And then again, the court says, okay, Mr. Mosty needs some time to review the documents and the court gives him the time that he's needed. And at this point, um, he then begins his cross-examination. And again, this is by Mr. Richard Mosty of the defense. Okay, Officer Byford, how many people were already at the scene when you arrived? Fire-related? Total. Total? I don't know. A lot? I don't have an exact number. There was an engine company, which would have been three men there. The first in ambulance had two men on it. Our ambulance had two men, and I recall one officer at the door, so I can account for that many people. You can account for seven paramedics and an officer. Yes. What about other people? Civilians? I recall seeing a man standing in the yard with no shirt and jeans on. Okay. Anyone else? Not to my knowledge. How many vehicles at the scene? We pulled up, I remember, I recall the first in engine, first in ambulance, and then a squad car, and then around about the corner there. All right. Now, you came with who? Who's the paramedic with you? Eric Zimmerman. All right, Zimmerman. So it's you and Zimmerman together. Who are the other paramedics you saw there at the scene? Brian Koshak. All right, where was he? He was attending Miss Routier on the porch. Okay, on the porch? Yes. Okay, who else? There was officers, an officer standing at the door. You know his name? No, I don't recall. Okay, who are the other paramedics and where were they? The captain on the engine company was standing just inside the door. Inside the residence? Right. And that's Captain? Vrana. Okay, just inside the door. All right. Who else? The rest of them, I don't know where Higgins was whenever we first arrived, but he came up to assist with Darley, with Brian and I. Do you know if he came from inside or outside? No, he wasn't inside. No. He came from somewhere outside? He either came from 902 or Engine 2. Okay. Meaning coming from the other... Coming from the other vehicles. Okay. The rest of the crew were at the ambulance. Okay, who was there? Jack Colby. Do you know where he was? I assume that he was in 902. Inside the ambulance? Inside the ambulance. Did you ever see him? Not until we got to the hospital. Rick Coleman. Where was Coleman? I assume he was inside 902 as well. Okay, anybody else there? Not that I came in contact with. Okay, what about Youngblood? You don't remember him being there? I don't recall if he was there or not. I don't recall ever making any personal contact with him. Okay, and when you exited your vehicle, you went where? To the front porch. And you went up there and you saw Miss Routier sitting on the front porch. Correct. And she was sitting down at that time? Yes. And where was 
Koshak was attending to her, he was kneeling beside her, kneeled beside her, and he was actually in the process of attending to her. That's correct. Okay. And then both y'all attended to her. Yes. And you inadvertently got the necklace under the gauze then. Yes, the lighting was poor. You didn't notice that at the time? I didn't notice it. All right. And then, if I understand you, you attended to her briefly and then took her to the ambulance? That's correct. How did you transport her to the ambulance? On a cot. We assisted her standing, walked her to the cot, which is just a short distance. It was right there beside the porch, placed her on the cot. By cot, is that the one that is on wheels? That's correct. Okay. And one that folds up. The legs fold up and go inside of, okay, an ambulance and MICU. Okay. So somebody had gotten out that out and had walked it up, I guess, the sidewalk? Yes. And then did you and Koshak assist her onto that? That's correct. And I assume she was laying on her back? Yes. Okay. And you moved her to the to 90901901? Yes. And where was it parked? We were parked at the front of the house or there close to the house, right there in a corner. Sort of a did you sort of go straight out from the sidewalk into that ambulance? I don't remember exactly where we parked. But in any event, you went over and folded up the legs of the, what I would call a stretcher. You call it a cot? A stretcher, cot, yes. You folded up the legs and pushed it into the unit. Yes. Okay, who did that? I don't recall who was on it. Generally, the whoever is on the foot of the cot pushes it in. I don't recall who was on the foot. Okay, was Higgins already inside the unit? I don't recall. Okay. But in any event, you and Higgins and Koshak all went inside the unit. That's correct. And what did you direct your attention to first? Assessing for other wounds. Okay. And that's, y'all carry a little pouch for those scissors, don't you? Yes. Our department supplies, what we call paramedic pants, they have large pockets, several pockets, straps, carry pen lights, scissors, gloves, your radio. Okay. And so you took out your scissors and you cut, if I understand, almost like a T. You cut that T-shirt off like a T. Yes. You cut the en entire front open. That's correct. You cut the entire right shoulder open. Yes. You cut the entire left shoulder open. Yes. So it's in two pieces. The shirt is by that time. Actually, it's in one large piece. One large piece. Yes. Okay, but you, it just falls to the side there. You don't have to move the patient to disrobe. I mean, to inspect. It just falls to the side. Okay. Did you then, did it fall to the side or did you need to, well, I just, you know, you have to, push it in the armpits here to expose here the shoulders. It just falls away. Okay. And there was a lot of blood on that shirt. There was blood on that shirt. Okay. You wouldn't describe it as a lot. A lot has different meaning to different people. But you, as a paramedic, in my experience, there a lot to me 
may be devastating to someone who has never seen anyone bleeding. But you wouldn't use the word a lot? I'd say substantial. Okay, had substantial blood on it. Yes, sir. Was it wet to the touch? I don't recall. Was it running, dripping? No, I don't recall an active bleeding there. No, I'm talking about the shirt itself. Was the shirt dripping blood? Well, that's something that I didn't examine. That's not something that I focused my attention on. You really didn't care about the shirt. You cared about the patient. That's correct. Okay. Was it soaked or could you even tell that? Or did you even take note of that? I didn't even... There was blood on the shirt and our standard procedure, we wear gloves and it's, I just didn't examine the shirt to see if it was dripping or the amount of blood in it. Okay, all right. And does it sort of fall open on the cot, on both sides of the cot? Yes, it falls down to the side there on the cot. Okay, did you move that shirt at all? No, I left it under her. Okay, so it's sort of laying open on her. That's correct. And that's when you did your quick visual examination. Yes. To locate other injuries, perhaps. Yes. Okay. When you did all that, did you get blood on your gloves? Yes. And blood on other places on you? No, not that I recall. If you just recall that your gloves were those latex? Yes. That your latex gloves were bloody? Yes. And that was from the shirt? Yes. Okay, and those latex gloves, they don't soak in, they don't absorb blood, do they? No, sir. Okay, it falls off, cast off. We peel them off and get another pair. Okay, how many times would you be, how many did you peel off, do you think, in this? I guess if they get dirty or if they get wet, you peel them off and get another one? To prevent contamination of your sheets, your clothing, Anything else you might touch, IV, tubing, you change gloves, our equipment. Okay, it's easier to change gloves than to decontaminate an entire ambulance. Okay, so you pop those gloves off. And what do you do with them? We have a biohazard bag, a red bag is what we call it, beside there at the head of the ambulance there. Okay, it's a particular one. It's a particular bag, and nothing but biohazard goes into that bag. And that's needles? No. No, that's something else? We have a sharps container for needles. Okay, so anything that is not sharp, that's contaminated with blood, you throw in that bag. That's correct. That red bag. Yes. How many separate gloves do you think you went through? I know I changed once. Okay. Would that also be true if you were treating one patient and you went to another? Would you change gloves? You would change gloves. You would? Yes. You should? Yes, you should. Okay. And then after you made that assessment, I'm back in the ambulance now. You made that assessment after having disrobed her. And then about that time, y'all were taking off for Baylor? Yes. Okay. Did I understand that when you... When Mr. Davis asked you about did you handwrite a report that you didn't recall doing that? I don't recall if I didn't recall before I looked at the report if I had written down her birth date or her age or something. Now, 
what I was talking about was toward the end of your examination that I thought he asked you, do you remember going down to the Rowlett Police Department and writing out a report and you couldn't remember doing that until you... No, I didn't recall that incident there. Actually, you didn't recall going down there at all? Well, we respond to the police department quite often on calls, and we also go down there for regular meetings, CE, and we have business back and forth with that part of the department, so I'm there quite often. Okay, I'm not fussing with you. You just didn't remember that. But that is my handwriting, and that is my diagram. And it was done on June 12th? Yes. Do you need to see it? Is that the date that's on it? Or will you take my word for it? Yes, sir. Okay. It was done on June 12th, and they, I guess they asked you to, who asked you to do it? I believe it was Officer Patterson. All right. Patterson was asking, and this is on June 12th, some six days later. Yes. He had asked me to briefly describe how I cut the shirt off. Did he ask you to, you know, sit down and tell me everything that you can remember that was of significance? On that particular day, I don't recall. Okay. I don't recall what all... Okay. Well, you described some of what you had seen that day, didn't you? I didn't read all of that report whenever he showed it to me here. Okay. I just looked at the signature and confirmed that that's my writing and that's my diagram. Okay. You would agree with me, of course, that everyone is a unique individual who reacts differently to situations. That's correct. And you see that frequently, don't you? Yes. And I guess you go to automobile accidents? Yes, sir. People react differently? Yes. Two people in the same vehicle will react differently? Yes. Right? Yes. One might be hysterical. The other one might be calm. Yes, sir. Okay, and you oftentimes visit with those people who have been in that sudden traumatic event, don't you? Yes, I try to be reassuring. And you need at least a little bit of history if you can get it. I mean, if they're, yes, able to talk to you. In my business, the physical history is the most important thing. And I stress to anyone who is hysterical that if they are in a risky situation, that they're being able to tell me or telling me what their physical needs are is very important. You're telling them to calm down for you. You're reassuring them. Basically, I'm telling them to calm down and work with me. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. And sometimes those people don't have a very good recollection of what happened. Not often. Okay. Not often that they do have a good recollection. It's not often that they don't recollect what's going on. Well, for instance, you've been in automobile accidents and had people who didn't know how they got out of a vehicle. That's happened to you, hasn't it? It has. Somebody has been in an automobile accident and don't remember undoing their seatbelt. Well, yeah, that could be an instance. But they know they got out of the car, for instance. Yes, that kind of thing happens to you, doesn't it? Yes, there's degrees of decreased level of consciousness. Okay. Mr. Richard Mosty then says, that's all I have. The court then says, thank you. And at this point, Mr. Greg Davis uh, says, would you mark this, please? And then he begins his redirect examination. 
Let me ask you, Paramedic Byford, what did you do with the t-shirt after you cut it off the defendant once you got to the hospital? The, she, the t-shirt, our stretcher sheet and all slid over onto the bailer's table there. All right, let me ask you, was, did a Rowlett police officer at some point take possession of the t-shirt? Yes. All right, let me ask you to look at States Exhibit number 25, okay? Do you recognize that exhibit, sir? States Exhibit 25? Yes. Okay, is this the t-shirt that Darley Routier, the defendant, was wearing on June 6, 1996, when you came in contact with her? Yes. Your Honor? Well, let me go further. Let me just ask you, the condition of the t-shirt has changed somewhat since you saw it right? Yes. There are a lot of defects and holes in here that weren't here when you treated her. Is that right? That's correct. But this is, in fact, the t-shirt that she was wearing? Yes. Your Honor, at this time, we'll offer State's Exhibit number 25. Mr. Mosty says, may I take the witness on voir dire very briefly? The court then says, you may indeed. At which point, Mr. Mosty then begins, uh, with respect to Exhibit 25, when is the last time you saw it? That t-shirt? Yes. Well, well, let me just put it this way. You've never picked it up and collected it as evidence, did you? I didn't pick it up and collect it as evidence. Somebody else did? That's correct. And so you don't know what happened to it between the time that you last saw it and when that other person picked it up and collected it as evidence. Eric Zimmerman is, has gone through police officer school. I don't know the proper terminology for that. On that night, whenever we, after we had delivered her, he gathered that shirt and gathered the child's clothes as well. But you didn't. I didn't. I did not. You cut it off. I cut it off and left it laying with her and delivered her patient and my stretcher sheet to Baylor. And it went off with the stretcher, didn't it? The shirt? Yes. Or do you even know what happened to it? Yes, the shirt. She, her shirt and my stretcher sheet, we have disposable stretcher sheets. All went over to the ex their examining table. And someone else collected it? That's true. Okay. Mr. Richard Mosty then says, we will object to the offer at this time on the basis that the chain of custody is not proven. And the court then says, all right, overruled. States Exhibit 25 is then admitted. And then again, Mr. Greg Davis gets up to then again go on with another redirect examination. Officer, would you please step down for just one moment and just briefly, if we may, show the jury if you see here on the t-shirt the cuts that you actually made on the t-shirt. Okay. And at this point, he steps down from the witness box and Mr. Davis says, if you will just step back here so that everyone on the jury can see, you indicated that you had cut straight down the front of the t-shirt. Is that right? Yes, sir. Do we see a cut down the entire length of the shirt? Yes. Starting at the neck all the way down to the bottom. Yes, it's been fixed together. Right, it's been fixed, right. But this is actually the cut line, right? Yes. On each one of the sleeves, do we have a first 
on the left sleeve do we have a cut line that goes from the neck area back to the left sleeve? Yes. And on the right sleeve, do we have a corresponding cut mark that goes from the neck all the way out the length of the sleeve? That's correct. All right. Are those the cut marks that you made on States Exhibit number 25 on June the 6th of 1996? Yes. Did you make any other cut marks or any other defects in this t-shirt while you had it in your possession, sir? No. Okay. The witness then heads back up to the stand and he continues his questioning. As far as the other holes, other defects that occurred at some time, some later time, and you don't know how those happened, right? No. Okay. Mr. Greg Davis says no further questions. The court then asks, all right, anything else? Mr. Mosty says no. And then the court says, all right, you may step down, at which point they end this day of testimony. And this happens to actually be a Friday. So the so Monday, January 14th of 1997 is when they will continue. So let's go over what we've heard in these two paramedics uh, testimony today. First, we'll start with Brian Koshak. He was the first one on the stand today. And he said that when he entered the Routier home, Jack Colby, the paramedic that testified in the last episode, he was the very last one in the last episode to testify. He was already working on one child, and this child would have been Damon. So Jack and Damon were to his left as he entered the den, and straight ahead of him was Darley and Officer Waddell. He said that Darley and Waddell were about five to six feet from Damon, but Jack Colby, in his testimony, said that they were almost twice that amount as far as, far as being far away. Now, they may have moved between the time that Colby arrived and the time that Koshak and then Koshak arrived. I don't know. At first, Brian Koshak cannot recall if Darren was there or not, but then he did. He said that Darren was walking from where Devin was laying, which was in the middle of the, the room, and Darren started walking towards Jack Colby and himself. Brian Koshak wanted to head towards Devin to check on his condition, but because Darren was heading his way, he wasn't able to get through, and he had to walk past Darley and Waddell around the couch to get to Devin. And he did realize shortly after looking and assessing Devin that Devin had already passed away. Now, there was nothing that he could do for him, so he then turned his attention to attending to Darley. He said that she was kneeling on the floor next to the bar. She had on a large t-shirt or nightgown and was holding a rag to her neck. Her shirt was covered in blood and he noticed a laceration on her neck and one to her arm. She asked Koshak who could have done this to her babies and she was upset. Brian Koshak also said that Darley was not crying or screaming. Now, this differs from what Jack Colby said. And if you remember, Jack Colby was the last to testify in the previous episode. He was the very first paramedic on the scene. Jack Colby had said that there was so much screaming that he wanted to get the child out to the ambulance so that he could work on him. 
Now, back to Brian Koshak. Uh, Later, Brian mentions that it was Darren who was screaming. But in his report that he wrote the very same day, he mentions that both Darren and Darley were screaming, not just Darren. When it came to cross-examination, Mr. Mulder had reviewed the notes after a short break, and within the notes, it definitely says that both Darren and Darley were screaming, that Darley was distraught, and that it was, quote, very loud in the house. Darley followed Koshak out to the front porch so that he could work on her injuries better. He was looking specifically for shock in Darley, like blood loss, etc. And he didn't determine, he didn't think that she was in shock. She was able to follow instructions and ask answer questions. He then called for a stretcher to take her to an ambulance. Now, the two, uh, between the two that testified today, there's a little bit of a difference based on how Darley got onto the stretcher. Now, Brian says that she got on the stretcher. Now, I don't know if that means that she just did it all on her own. In the testimony that follows, it says that she was assisted. So take that for what it's worth. Inside the ambulance, Brian Koshak started an IV. She had good blood pressure, and so the IV flow was minimal. And while he's in there, Larry Byford, the next person we'll hear from or that we heard from today, began to cut um, Darley's shirt off to check for other injuries. Uh, She had on no other clothes, but just the t-shirt. There wasn't even any undergarments. Brian is then asked if Darley ever asked about Drake the infant, and he said no. However, Darley at this time likely knew that a trusted neighbor had taken him to her house, so there was really no reason to ask about him. She knew what had happened to him. And Brian Koshak is again asked by the prosecution if Darley ever asked anyone about her kids and how they were. And again, it's likely she already knew their condition. The prosecutor asks nearly everyone this question, as if Darley were supposed to pose this question to every last person that she came in contact with to show that she cared. Again, he is asked by the prosecution if another civilian female, and again, they're referring to Karen Neal, the neighbor, was inside the home while he was there, and he said that no, uh, she wasn't. He did say that he looked over Darren And he said that he did not notice any injuries to Darren. The Rowlett Police Department did ask him, Brian Koshak, to make notes and to give an affidavit, which he did. He was questioned also under oath by the defense attorney. But again, the prosecution points out that this questioning happened by Darley's previous attorney, Douglas Parks, none of her current defense attorneys. Now, when he is under cross-examination, he was asked if he could tell whether or not there were efforts to help Devin. He said he could not tell. He testified that Darley's neck laceration was about three to four inches, but his report says four to five inches. So he eventually, while on the stand, settles on four inches. He is also asked about whether or not a nurse came to help, and he said no, no one had come up to help them. He does not remember when looking over Darren if Darren had blood on his hands. But again, after reviewing his notes, he changes his answer and Darren did have blood on his hands and his arms. When talking about Darley's injuries, he does say that she was holding a towel to her neck and that he had removed the towel 
and just left it on the front porch. And interestingly, uh, he does say that one of the reasons that he had taken Darley outside to work on her instead of attending to her injuries on the inside of the house was to, quote, calm her down and to calm himself down. But at first he had testified that, hey, she wasn't yelling or screaming or anything. And it wasn't until his notes came out that he changed his tune. He didn't remember seeing a necklace on Darley. And towards the end of his uh, testimony, in his notes uh, that were taken the day of the crime, he noted that after she had said, quote, who could have done this to my babies? She mentioned either, quote, he broke out a window with a baseball bat or had a black baseball cap on. Then it was, quote, broke out a window and had a baseball cap on. And that Darley was saying this as he's coming into the room as she was there next to Officer Waddell. He, however, he's never asked if she was talking to Waddell or if she was talking to him. I mean, it would make sense that she was actually talking to the officer. And if she was talking to Waddell, why didn't Waddell bring this up, this mention of a baseball bat? Now, I know that they're not supposed to speculate while they're on the stand, but why didn't anybody ask him about this? So let's move on to the second one to testify today, and that was Larry Byford. Now, his partner, a paramedic partner that night, was Eric Zimmerman. Uh, when they arrived, Koshak and Colby were already there. Brian Koshak was at the time triaging Darley, and this was at the front door. He believes there was also an officer there at the front door. Larry Byford stepped inside the house to see if there was anyone else, but he only went as far as the foyer where he could see into the family room and the kitchen. He never actually walked into the family room or the kitchen. He was there less than a minute. Now, Koshak and Darley were still on the front porch when he walked back outside. He said he was only in there for less than a minute. He then helped Koshak and first bandaged Darley's arm. After they get Darley into the ambulance, uh, he, Larry Byford, was charting and he was doing this to find out her age and what medication she was on, etc. And at this point, she stated that she was taking weight loss medication But at this time, during trial, it is not stated what it was. She was wearing a t-shirt type material. He referred to it as a gown. And he removed or used trauma shears to remove this nightgown. Um, It's very important, this cut. This is covered quite extensively. As to how this shirt was cut off of Darley, Larry specifically says it was cut first down the middle from the neck all the way to the bottom, to the bottom hem. And then from the neck opening to the sleeves on either side. And this allows the gown to just fall open so that they can find other injuries. He did realize that there was a necklace taped under the bandage. He tried under the neck wound a bandage. He tried to move it and she kind of grimaced, kind of gave a, a, a face like it was painful. So he just decided to leave it there. No medications were given to Darley on the way to the hospital. Uh, During the ride, she did a remark about doing CPR on one of the boys. And then Larry uh, Larry states that on June 12th, he was asked to give an affidavit to the Rowlett Police Department. He didn't recall that he had done this, 
So he had to have his memory jogged and he was presented with a document. And when he sees this document, he says that, oh yeah, that's my signature. When it comes time for the defense to ask him questions, he is asked how many people were there and he wasn't sure, but he estimated around six paramedics and a police officer. He does recall seeing a man in the front yard with jeans and no shirt. And although he doesn't say it, nobody mentions it, I'm just assuming that this was Darren. He also says that his captain, Vrana, was standing inside the house just inside the door. And Darley's defense attorney asks uh, Larry Byford about Darley's t-shirt and if it was, yes, he knows it was bloody, but doesn't know if it was wet or dry or what. But he did say that the latex gloves that he had on did end up having blood on them after handling the t-shirt. And as far as this affidavit goes that he evidently had written on June the 12th that he couldn't remember writing until he saw it, he was asked if he remembered heading to the police station to do it. And he mentions that he's at the police station quite often anyway to do various things, including meetings. So this wasn't unusual that he would be at the station. He just still could not remember writing this affidavit. When he's asked who asked him to write this document, he says he believes it was Detective Patterson who asked him to write something down, but especially how the shirt was cut off. Now, when the defense team is all done doing their cross-examination, the prosecution gets up and they do a redirect. And what came of this was that at the hospital, the t-shirt that Darley was wearing, along with the sheet that was on the stretcher and Darley, they were all moved together to the table after they got to the hospital. Now, an officer evidently did take possession of the shirt later. Now, this t-shirt, when they're showing it in court, however, was in a far different condition than when Larry had actually seen it last. Now, the t-shirt in Exhibit 25, it seems to have a lot of holes in it right now. So then again, um, then the defense team is asked, hey, can I get back up and ask a few more questions? Because, you know, this is interesting. So Mosty then gets back up and, of course, part of Darley's defense team and asks if Larry had gathered up the shirt and such. And he said that it was Eric Zimmerman, his partner, who had gone through police school and gathered up the T-shirt as well as the children's clothing. Now, I don't know if this means that the children's clothes were there with Darley. I don't believe that they were. Does this mean that he went to other rooms to gather that stuff up as evidence? And why would he do that? Was he instructed to do that? This is all really interesting, isn't it? But here's the thing. We'll never, ever know because he is not listed as being a witness in the trial. How crazy is that? It would seem that this would be a very important person to question, doesn't it? He's not even listed in the post-trial documents, nor is there even an affidavit from him. I hope that I'm wrong and I'm just missing something here, but I couldn't find anything. So when Mr. Mosty objects about using the t-shirt as evidence that paramedic Eric Zimmerman had taken and that Larry Byford had said that Zimmerman gathered this t-shirt and the kids' clothing because he had been to police school, 
When Mr. Mosty asked the judge to rule out the t-shirt as evidence because there isn't a clear record showing who handled the object, the judge then responds with, overruled, essentially saying that they're going to allow the t-shirt as evidence anyway. I mean, what? What? Really? That makes no sense to me. Oh, and one last thing that I forgot to mention, and it was only during Brian Koshak's testimony. I don't know this why, why this wasn't asked of Larry Byford, but Brian was asked about whether or not he saw a vacuum cleaner in the room or in the vicinity of where Darley was. He's also asked if he ever saw a vacuum cleaner in the family room or if he had ever moved a vacuum cleaner or ever touched a vacuum cleaner. And to all of these questions, he says no. But again, Brian Koshak is the only one thus far that has been asked about a vacuum. So with that, listeners, um, I'm going to leave it. We're done with this particular day. The next testimony will be of that of Officer David Main, and he serves as both the crime scene photographer and the manager of the evidence section for the Rowlett Police Department. Now, Officer Main's testimony actually lasts not only the entire next day, but rolls over into the following day of testimony. So it's going to be very, very long. So I'm going to break it down into several parts. And this testimony will take place on day six of the trial, which happened on January 14th of 1997. So stay tuned. I appreciate you all hanging around and listening. And uh, I'd be really curious to know your thoughts about this whole Eric Zimmerman uh, thing. I really hope we get into it within uh, testimony as to everything he did exactly with this this evidence or if he did it at all. You know, we're just taking the word of, of one person. So anyhow, thank you, thank you. Um, if you think that someone you know would love this coverage of the Routier trial or any other of the Beach House 34 episodes, please share it with them. I would be forever grateful. Once again, thank you for listening and I'll be back soon with another installment of the Darley Routier trial. Until then, stay alert.